Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. I'm Dr. Bud Marr. And we're coming to you live, evidently with birds. Bud, you sound like you're at the Magic Kingdom. Is that just the Magic Kingdom of Pittsburgh or what? Is that is that my audio or Jimmy's? I don't know. Somewhere I heard birds and it was glorious. So uh, I, think- I mean, there's there's uh, seven children ransacking through the house, but I don't know about any birds. <laughs> well, either way, I, I just think that that shows that uh, we've been blessed with the, the divine favor. This show's going to be special. I have a feeling. This is The Uncommon Good. I'm Bo Bonner with Dr. Bud Marr. Uh, I'm coming to you from Des Moines, where I'm the director of mission and ministry at Mercy College of Health Sciences and the director of the Zeta Institute. Bud, oh, and you can visit us, mchs.edu. Bud, what do you do out there in Pittsburgh? I'm here in Pittsburgh at the National Institute for Newman Studies, um, all things St. John Henry Newman. You can find out about our work at newmanstudies.org. But I I, I just think that um, we need to be on our A game because... Uh, I just, I, was I the only person who heard that? I heard an explosion of, of bird song, and I, I thought like your voice had changed. And I was like, wow, bud, that is very melodic of you. But uh, either way, I think we have a, a melodic sing song show for people today. Yeah, one of our, uh, well, we, you know, it's clearly an uncommon good all star, Brandon McGinley, an author and speaker here in Pittsburgh. But today's show is exciting because uh, he recently released a new book the prodigal church about restoring Catholic tradition uh, in an age of deception. And I've been plowing the, through this thing. It's, it's great. Um, I can say right off the bat that all of our listeners should go out and find it, um, make it uh, a reading item in your, in your neighborhoods and your parishes. I think there's a lot to challenge us in this new book by Brandon. Yeah. Roving gangs of people reading the prodigal church as a future we should all be for. Folks, as always, speaking of uh, singing out in song the praises of a group, we need to praise Mercy College of Health Sciences and underwrites our show, mchs.edu. In the middle of our summer semester, wrapping up, getting ready for the fall, taking all the precautions uh, for our students, thinking through the best way uh, to keep everybody safe, but also get the next wave of uh, nurses and allied health and other medical practitioners out there to help heal the world mchs.edu thank you mercy college of health sciences for underwriting our show but what do you have going on there during the fall it feels like your roles and responsibilities shift are you you planning some speakers or teaching a bit or what well we're trying to figure out um, exactly how to do some of that stuff right so you know we've had the faith and healing uh, lecture series and that usually includes people you know coming into closed spaces and having them fly in on an airplane. So I think we might be trying to figure out if we can do something virtual this year and uh, what that might look like. Um, but uh, yeah, everything, uh, the, the big thing is consulting about how are we going to get people to do, uh, you know, th- things like clinicals and stuff like that, where they have to be in person, um, working hard to, to ask those questions and, and figure out what to do so that, uh, you know, we're, n- we're not going to be able to do uh, normal or the new normal, but hopefully figure out um, how in this time to to make sure that people get the education um, that uh, we know mercy is capable of doing while uh, being honest and uh, appreciating uh, the difficulty that everybody else is facing because of the crisis. 
Yeah, I'll be honest. I've fielded some tough questions, difficult questions with my servant leadership course, because that normally involves students doing uh, different projects out in the community. So, you know, they've come to me with these concrete questions like, can I, can I set up like a community garden that would deliver the food that's grown to folks? But I know Mercy's being really careful about any sort of activity that would maybe contribute to the spread of the virus. Also, uh, I don't know if they trust you to run a garden, but I don't mean to air dirty laundry, but that was a, that was a topic at the last college. Sit no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it's true. We actually, for the first time here in Pittsburgh, we did get a garden off the ground this year and it's been different stages of fending off animals. So we had, we had like a six foot kind of fence up, but the deer just jumped over it. So then we put, <laughs> then we put a net over the top and that's actually um, deterred the deer because they, I guess deer don't have great depth perception. So they're kind of nervous too. Uh, I mean, the net has sufficiently scared them away, but a, a few nights ago, poor little Mary, she left the door open to the garden and some rabbits just ransacked the thing. So her little, her older sisters are <laughs> holding it, holding a bit of a grudge this week. So like in native Pittsburgh, like, like, do you guys grow like yingling and french fries is that just both of those just come straight out of the ground up there <laughs> the Pramonti the Pramonti brothers uh sandwiches come right off the vine <laughs> that's right you put in like a little crust at the edge of the bread and then just it comes right back. Oh, no. uh you guys have a shorter growing season though right so you have to hop to it and make sure to grow stuff that's going to get done yeah actually what's been most successful is we have a raised bed that's that's got a bunch of different kinds of lettuces and that's mm. been amazing. So we've been, but it's petering out now because lettuce, of course, is like a colder weather type thing. Right. But they've got they've got beans and potatoes and like a sunflower. We had some good zucchini the other night, but it's, I mean, you've been to my house, Bo. It's the wild kingdom. We've got <laughs> <laughs> we've got groundhogs and rabbits and squirrels and deer. Um, I think the foxes mostly avoid the garden, but uh, there's a lot of potential, you know, enemies of what we're growing. I think at the very least, you're doing a good job feeding the local animals, and that's very nice of you, bud. Well, this is The Uncommon Good, and uh, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr uh, loved you guys all joining us here on this Wednesday. We're going to be back with our guest, Brandon McGinley, author of the new book, The Prodigal Church. He's been on the show before. We've had a great time. You'll want to stick around. This is The Uncommon Good, and we'll be back right after this. get to talk to you today but because brandon is out in your neck of the woods i'm going to turn it over to you to introduce our guest today on the show yeah brandon mcginley lives here in pittsburgh he's a catholic writer and speaker who's written dozens of articles including at places like first things the plow the lamp catholic herald he's edited numerous books for ewtn but his most recent offering is a self-authored book the prodigal church restoring catholic tradition in an age of deception. Brandon, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, Brandon, I'll start off. So uh, in the subtitle of the book, you mentioned restoring tradition in an age of deception. And, and your book is certainly clear about like the challenges and difficulties facing the church today. But you have this section early on, which I found really intriguing, about uh, the church that during I think what some would say was the golden age of American Catholicism, 
So you look back to like the 1950s and parishes were full. You know, they'd have six or seven masses on a Sunday. Vocations were booming. There was a real um, synergy between family life and, and parish life. But uh, I, if, I, if I read you correctly, you would say that despite our difficulties today, it would be a mistake to try to just recreate that time. And I was wondering if you could talk to start us off with about like what are some of the perils of being too nostalgic about 1950s era Catholicism? Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of like the skeleton key for the whole thing because, um, you know, in addition to everything you described about parish life and family life, there was also the wider cultural stuff where like in the 40s and 50s, you have like Bing Crosby is winning Oscars for playing hero priests in Hollywood movies and things like that. And it's easy to look back at that and say like, wow, we had it all. Um, and yet the, the two things I would point out about wanting to try to go back is that first of all, going back simply impossible. There's no way to recreate any particular time in the past. I think I say something in the book like trying to recreate some particular past moment is no more an authentic version of traditionalism than Renaissance fairs saw. It's it's uh, it's a way to um, to to indulge a kind of nostalgia for something that most people don't even remember. Um, but it's not actually possible in in the year 2020. Um, it's, uh, it's a kind of, um, play acting. So there's that. But then I, I also want to be really, I, I think, you know, it's important for understanding where we are now to realize that a lot of the seeds, um, that produce the kind of dread fruit of apostasy and, and kind of, you know, becoming so entangled in mainstream culture that we just became um, you know, unintelligible and difficult to distinguish from the rest of the world. That's all sitting right there in that era. It's not like everything was great. Everything was great. Everything was great. Vatican II, everything was awful. That's, that's, that's a very simplistic way of looking at the history. Um, you know, suburbanization is already starting to break up these neighborhoods in the 1950s. And then it accelerates in the sixties and seventies, uh, for instance, um, a kind of bourgeois cultural Catholicism where mass is the thing you do because it's the respectable thing that people in your class do. Um, it is important to be seen at mass, to be seen at the Catholic school. This, this is not something that just emerges out of nowhere. Um, it's something that is already there. And, and I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not just making this up. Um, you know, uh, Fulton Sheen wrote in his autobiography about this, about how religion became to, came to be seen. And this is not just a modern thing in the sense of, you know, 70s and 80s, but something he's writing about the he's writing about the, the, the past when he wrote his autobiography, I think in the 70s, that um, that the faith came to be seen as an accessory to a respectable bourgeois life. And then when what is respectable or mainstream changes, then what the church and what people and what the church, both often institutionally and in terms of lay people and, and so on, um, uh, find to be uh, an acceptable and safe practice of the faith changes with what the rest of the culture thinks is respectable and safe. That for me more than any sort of Vatican II boogeyman or the kind of, you know, we didn't properly implement Vatican II boogeyman, whatever, whatever the case may be, that explains the data 
better than anything. Brandon, so, you know, I think it's important for people to think, right, that, you know, we're, we're trying to navigate between or even just consider the sort of uh, antagonism between like pro or anti-Vatican II being played out and not really uh, worth con- uh, the, the supposed explanatory power that it has. We need to we need to look deeper. We need to look in different ways. You also, uh, I think what your book tries to do, and now I'm referring to an article that's about your book. This is on Crux um, by uh, another friend of the show, uh, Charles Kamosi. He does an interview with you. So if people want to get a sense of the book, um, I think this is a good way to do this. Um, but he points this out that what you're trying to do is show that the answer is not, it, it's not an ethno-nationalism or a neoliberal cosmopolitanism. In fact, I love how Charles puts the title because it says, author spurns choice between ethno-nationalism and neoliberal cosmopolitanism. And I was thinking, this is the weirdest game show that I could imagine, right? <laughs> do you choose the ethno-nationalism behind door A, or do you choose neoliberalism cosmopolitanism behind door B? And you said, nah, neither. But, <laughs> I reject but, the choice. Yeah, that's right. What's in Dorsey? And it's a goat, and there's a ball. Exactly. I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but the point being is, if your book is trying to get at anything, um, not only for, do you get this sense right from the article here, but like, looking through the book and, and everything that, you know, Bud said and all the reviewers, what you're trying to do is say, you know, what we have to look through is not a sort of even resourcement, like we got to go back to some sort of uh, pristine golden age, nor do we need to choose sides. What we need to do is take an honest, clarifying look about how scripture uh, is going to make us read the sides of the times differently. And I think a good way to show this to folks is, um, exactly this question about how you decided to call the book the prodigal church. Um, If you don't mind sort of recapping that a little bit uh, for people listening now, I think that that's a good way to talk about what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, you know, that it it was like, it was like a European uh, football team where it just kept uh, the, the, um, the, the title just kept advancing on the ranks. I used the phrase in one of the chapters. I liked it. I named it, named a subheading within the chapter of the prodigal church. Then I liked it enough that I raised it to the level of the, the, the chapter uh, itself. And then when we were um, brainstorming titles, I tossed that in there and it got elevated to the title of the book. And, you know, the important thing is that, you know, the word prodigal, means something quite negative prodigality is is wastefulness in a kind of in a kind of lavish and and um and kind of crude luxury that is that is wasteful it's the i talk about the dissipation of an inheritance in the book because the word dissipation is right there in the prodigal the prodigal son parable but importantly the title is not supposed to just evoke prodigality it's supposed to evoke the entire parable including especially um, reconciliation and restoration. That, for me, is what people think about. When you think of the prodigal son, you don't necessarily think of the, of the, the going and you know, living in pigsties or whatever. You think of the return, the restoration, and that's the key, is that, yes, it can seem hopeless in the moment. The, the church, the situation of the church today can seem really, really hard, like there's just nothing to be done about it. But the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son teaches that through grace, the restoration and re- reconciliation and the restoration of a relationship is possible. 
that I love that word dissipation that's used in the in the parable where it says the prodigal the, the son goes out and he dissipates his father's he dissipates his inheritance but it's a life of dissipation has to do with 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 becoming one with the environment around you when a sandcastle dissipates when the tide comes in it becomes one with the world around it, it becomes indistinguishable it loses all of its integrity and importantly cannot be put back together a thing that is dissipated cannot be put back together in a way that something that's broken can be but the beautiful miraculous thing is that even something that's dissipated can be restored by god and that's what you see in the in the parable where the son comes back and he is restored to the fullness of his relationship with his father. And the church, as hard as the situation can seem now, when you have, you know, Matt, you know, when you have, first of all, when you have the situation at this particular moment with the pandemic and everything, and then the the situation where, you know, you know, a very small number of people who identify as Catholic are actually going to mass and actually believe what the church, church teaches, it sounds horrible and hopeless. But when the church is what she is by nature, when she embraces her actual nature as the mediator of grace to the world, that grace can heal us and her. And that that's what I want to get at, is that um, the book is not supposed to be crank, cranky, backward looking. It's supposed to be there. There is a backward looking aspect. So we understand how we got what we got. And that's what we just talked about. But it's mostly hopeful and forward looking, talking about what the church and be when she embraces what she really is. Brandon, one part of the book that I loved, and I know you've written about this elsewhere, is your discussion of the Masters Golf Tournament. Uh, (laughs) When Bo Bo and I went to Divinity School, Bo, should we leave the school nameless at this point? It was was United Methodist (laughs) Divinity School. The United (laughs) Methodist Church during that stage had a marketing uh, campaign that the slogan for it was open hearts, open doors, open minds. I don't know uh-huh. the exact order, but those three phrases. And when you talk about the masters, it's almost, well, I, I don't know. It's something very different. So uh, the masters builds itself as a tradition, unlike any other. Um, could you talk about um, what the Catholic church today might learn looking at, at something like the, um, the masters golf tournament? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like golf and, and for me, you know, obviously this year we missed it, but it's, you know, it's one of my favorite events of the year is the masters. And I understand that there is a difficult history there, and it's not. And, and a lot of the tradition is kind of made up and is kind of enforced by, by, um, by clever marketing and so on. But that's kind of the point: is that this completely man-made tradition has been able to maintain its distinctiveness because the people in charge of it have put a lot of effort into it. They only allow the most, the the most famous and stable companies to advertise it's like ibm and mercedes-benz and like at&t like these are companies that are that are they're more stable than most national governments you know um they enforce the the language that the announcers use to describe the golf course and will not invite back any announcers that don't use the preferred language this is kind of a level of control that nobody else really really tries to use but they have a an item they have a, a thing in the tournament that is valuable and they keep its value by treating by it, by, by requiring that people treat it with, with, with respect. The example that I use is the kind of counter example is, can you imagine if something that is at least as valuable, say Notre Dame football were to require that NBC broadcast the Hail Mary 
before the uh, before the uh, uh, football games and say, "Sorry, NBC, you're not invited back if you don't if you don't do this." They have the the power in our system to be able to enforce a certain distinctiveness that goes beyond just football. That goes to faith, and I think the Catholic Church has, uh, you know, has that kind of. We we have we have not taken the opportunities that have been presented to us to um, to maintain. Uh, the distinctiveness that makes our tradition, our capital T sacred tradition, not a man-made tradition, something that is much more than a, a golf tournament or a football program. Um, we have not taken the opportunities to to maintain that distinctiveness. We have been satisfied to be seen as just one denomination among others, just one thing among others, just one institution among others, rather than uh, doing something, rather than uh, boldly and confidently doing what a few guys down in Augusta, Georgia can do, we can do it too. We can, we can maintain and, and, and defend and confidently proclaim our distinctiveness. And the evidence is pretty clear that especially in an age when everything seems the same, when everything's getting, you know, folded into one another, whether it's corporate mergers or kind of just cultural phenomena that is constantly becoming more and more the same, more and more kind of decadent as Ross Douthat would say. Um, that something that is that has is rooted in the past and anchored in heaven, like the church, we should be able to be distinctive. Now, Brandon, I see that you're coming on the show uh, trying to be combative. I mean, you've brought up soccer, golf, and Notre Dame football, all, all three <laughs> things that, that Bud and I never talk. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, uh, no, but in this regard, so I, I think about um, combativeness, actually, seriously, not you, not you being so... That, sure. that sometimes people go, well, you know, okay, you want to be distinct or you want to talk about, um, you know, th that we have a tradition that we guard. But isn't that just unnecessarily being combative with the culture or isn't that being elitist, right? So like anytime you're going to talk about, you know, golf or the Masters, you know, and of course all analogies limp except in the point of comparison. So I'm not trying to be unfair on that sure. regard. But I think that that is actually sort of answered in the title of your book to not keep harping on this, that, you know, what, what makes us distinct is actually not the sort of cultural force um, that, that we've sort of latched onto and dissipated, like you said, uh, into, yeah. but actually our prodigality is something that we're supposed to set us apart and, and be insistent on it and, and guard and that it's our prodigality that exactly. And like you said, that second half, the coming back to the father that we've been, um, easily uh, uh, mistreated and, and we've worried about uh, the inheritance of the world as it is instead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, we, we have, um, you know, when we, when we talk about, when we talk about, you know, restoring tradition or whatever, there is, there is only a small part of it is the kind of tradition that we were just describing there the the kind of um the kind of aesthetic or, or whatever or kind of you know that, that kind of tradition but um importantly what really distinguishes us isn't necessarily the kind of thing that you can um that you can enforce in the way the masters does or whatever um and so that's why that's a limited analogy as you said that, that kind of works for part of the book but not but not for the whole thing um what really distinguishes us is the person of Jesus Christ present 
on the altar at mass, present in the poor, present in um, present in 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 the sense of the church being the body of Christ. And it is in it is not so much in um, in kind of uh, in it's not so much in um, a kind of uh, identitarian distinctiveness um, because that can go to dangerous places where it becomes just about the identity and not about just about the identity in contrast with the world and not about the not about the identity in Christ, who is the contrast, not us personally. Um, but it's about the that the um, it's about that that uh, um, embracing the reality of who Christ is and what the church is and the, all the contradictions and the, um, and the, uh, you know, combativeness isn't the right word for it. All of the, 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 contra the contradictions and the distinctions will become clear. Not so much if we're trying to be distinctive as much as if we are simply what we are called to be. Yeah, we're coming up on the break, Brandon, and so I think that this is a good way for you to like open up what we should talk about uh, when we get back from the break, right? It's like when we talk about what we should be and how that looks like. As you said, this is the sort of bulk of what your book is about. We start out talking about the past, how we get here, uh, but the rest of it really wants to go into what makes us distinctive, what's going to be, uh, what's it going to look like to be um, the church in the world in a distinctive way. And I know for a lot of people, it's, uh, it's easy to think that, um, isn't this, haven't we heard some of this before, but it's precisely uh, the sort of dissipation that has made any sort of comment before about this sort of, uh, like you've said, attend to one hobby horse or another. And, and I think that that's exactly what you're trying to get through here is how are we going to look um, the, what undergirds and the, the common roots between all of these things so that they stop being hobby horses and start being an answer and, and something that we're going to tell young people, you know, the, yeah. the, the, uh, on the horizon, the arguments and things we're going to get into, what we're going to have to be willing to, like you say, be distinct about what's common to those. And so when we get back, uh, we'll talk about that more. This is The Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Mars speaking with our author Brandon McGinley. Uh, the Prodigal Church is his book, and uh, we look forward to you coming back. This is The Uncommon Good. We'll be back right after. We're back with The Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Mar coming to you this Wednesday. Thank you, folks, for joining the show. On today, we have an all-star guest that we always love having on, Brandon McGinley, author of the new book, The Prodigal Church. Brandon, thank you for joining the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. So, Brandon, one of the ways that I think we can get into uh, some of the meat of what we want to talk about, I know that friendship and community and family are the sort of heart of the practical recommendations that you talk about in your new book. I think an interesting way uh, to talk about this comes from the, uh, the interview that I was pointing out in the first part of the show on Crux, uh, Charles Camosi interviews you uh, about your book, a good preview for people to read before they go and purchase it. Um, he brings up, right, that uh, in, indicative uh, of what your book is getting at um, is, is a quote that often gets misunderstood from uh, Car then Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, that the church would end up being smaller and more, well, it often gets uh, rendered smaller and more pure 
um, as you point out, it's actually he's saying smaller and more spiritual. Um, there are people who argue that like that's like a good tactical, purposeful thing we need to do. Um, and uh, books ranging from like the Benedict option to to other ideas about how we need to be a creative minority. You point out that that kind of misreads the quote where Benedict uh, seems to be saying this is happening whether we like it or not. And the ramifications of that ha happening sort of lead to the concerns that you have in your book. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I, I think that, you know, both the folks who read the, the who get from the smaller and purer idea something good and those who have used it as a kind of cudgel to beat, uh, you know, then Father Benedict, it was 1969, it's incredibly prescient remarks he gave. It's just amazing, it was that long ago. But um, but uh, the people use, who, who use those remarks as a kind of cudgel uh, to, to suggest that he is, you know, kind of mean-spirited or exclusive or is kind of, um, you know, just... Uh, is looking to like, you know, cut people out of the church. That's, that, that's complete misreading as well. What he's talking about is something that was going to, and, and thank goodness he noticed it. So many people were, you know, kind of whistling past the graveyard that, that, um, the, that the, the prevailing trends in the world and the church meant that yes, there was going to be certainly, he was speaking in Germany and so we can kind of extrapolate to, 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 to Europe and, and, uh, and the United States. Um, that, there, that the church was going to shrink and that in the process we were going to have to get used to not having the kind of influence and institutional footprint and so on that we have had in the past. And he wasn't saying that this was a good thing, but he was saying that it was going to happen and that it could be, it, it would necessarily result in us being a more spiritual church and that could be a purifying thing could be so it's not like you know we are um just going to shed all the dead weight and we're going to be like a lean mean fighting machine you know that was not it was not that kind of um that kind of almost kind of corporate way of thinking about we're just you know shedding the our our, our weak employees or something like that um that's a real misreading of what he was saying um what he's talking about is, is something is is um is that in one of the, the points that he talks about, and I think is really key when we're thinking about the book and we're thinking about the present and the future of the church in, in this part of the world, is that the people who are going to be sticking with the church are, are going to be those who are choosing it, who are, and it's no, the, 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 the idea of just kind of going along to get along that just, they, that, 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 that the faith we passed down like DNA, which is, not something that we should not want. It's something that when the church is at her very best, the church is forming cultures where the church is, where the faith is just passed on as a matter of course. But right now what we're dealing with is a moment when the, when the faith is, when, when um, the church needs really to be chosen by every person, because there are many, many, many other options on the table and everybody is uh, everybody kind of has to choose where they stand. That, like I said, it's not necessarily an ideal situation for the church, but it can be a purifying situation for the church because we are selecting basically for zealousness. We're selecting for, um, but, uh, but that, you know, that is, um, it can also be a dangerous situation for the church because uh, everyone can kind of feel like, oh, we, we got it all figured out on our own. We, we, we're kind of the, quote, faithful remnant when, um, when the church remains um, large, global, variegated, 
and um, and uh, and diverse. Yeah, Brandon, my uh, I, my heart went out to you a bit because you're releasing this book, you know, right when the COVID pandemic was breaking out, and it it just feels like these plates are shifting, and yeah. you know, like we're all trying to like sort of wrap our minds around what's going on. I thought you handled it really well with that author's note at the beginning where you say to the reader, like, you're going to know more about COVID than I did when I was writing this book. Yeah. Um, one of one of the mixed blessings, and and as you say, I think both in the interview and the book, like, we shouldn't necessarily, you know, like, find, find glee in the trouble or anything like that, but finding opportunities to witness during these difficult times, it, you know, questions about justice, and I would say the common good have kind of come to the fore. So even yes. with, like, the protests and these things breaking out, Really, our society is grappling with what does it mean to, I guess, take care of of of, of every of every member of society in a certain sense. And like one response that I've seen from some segments of the church is like, well, we can't like we can't join that conversation because, well, let's just be upfront. Like Black Lives Matter, if you read their website, it says this, this, and this, which is antithetical to the Catholic faith. But your book points out like we we have to be communities who are concerned about justice or, you know, of course, like fostering the common good. I was wondering yeah. if you could share with some of our readers kind of a sneak preview of the part of the book where you talk about the parish as a place of sanctuary, a place of grace, and, you know, throw out some ideas about what that might look like yeah. in our times. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, obviously, especially right now, when, you know, people haven't, when masses have been canceled, and, you know, donations have been down, and it's it's hard to talk about big ideas for parish life because the resources both in terms of people and money often just isn't there but one of the things i point out and i try not to be i try not to be like too um too kind of uh um optimistic or whatever um but the fact of the matter is is that uh, organizations that have a far less spiritual and uh and um, you know, far less kind of spiritual grounding than the Catholic Church, figure out how to do the things they want to do uh, with the resources that they have. And so what we need at the parish level, based, you know, re relative to the resources and the opportunities available in any particular parish, is a commitment to making the parish a place of justice, a place where in a world that is increasingly unjust, uh, in, a, in, a, in a world where, where justice is spurned, where solidarity is falling apart, the church where the, where the parish could be a place of peace and peace and justice. They, these two things go together. Peace is, if nothing else, the description of the state of justice where people are given their due and therefore there's a substantive peace, a harmony among people. Now, anybody who's experienced, you know, in, intra-parish politics understands that the parish is not, a, not often a place of peace, but we shouldn't joke about that. That's a bad thing. That's something that needs to be fixed. Um, and so I, yeah, so I, I think that, you know, the parish is the local instantiation of the church. It is important that the church be seen as, precisely by acting as, a force for comprehensive justice in the world. It's supernatural justice in the sense of the virtue of religion, in the sense of worship, in the sense of liturgy, in the sense of prayer, and um, justice in, 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 in material terms. A place where a person who is an immigrant or who, is, who has lost a job or who is homeless 
or who is mentally ill can feel safe, can feel like they have a home. Doesn't necessarily mean that every parish has to set up a homeless shelter. That's not physically possible for many parishes. And there are other considerations of insurance and liability. And, you know, I think these things could be figured out if you put your heads together, but I understand it's not an easy thing. At the very least, I think that every parish should be a place where any person can come and ask for help and receive help, even if it's just a referral to an organization that specializes in the kind of help that a person needs. Um, I don't think that this is, this is, I don't think that this should be thought of as fanciful. It's hard and, and, you know, and people have lots of other responsibilities. So it's hard to put these kind of things together. But if we are going to truly renew the church in our time, it's going to be both and it's we both liturgy and justice, both prayer and a place to sleep or a place to shower or a place to talk or whatever the place, whatever the case may be, because, as the world gets more and more confusing, more and more unstable, more and more crazy, we need the parish to be an oasis of the stability, of the sanity, of the security, of the sanctuary that the institutional church as a whole is by its very nature. And so, um, and so that, for me, is just as much a part of renewal, I'm as much a part of carving out a place for ourselves in this world um, as uh, as anything else you can think of. Well, Brandon, I think that segues into what what you really end the book on talking about friendship and community, because like you you noted, like if parishes don't seem like places of peace, it's no wonder that they don't emanate justice, right? Because if you don't have you know, you're, you're, you know, if, uh, if an individual doesn't have their spiritual life in order, it's going to show right in their exterior life towards others. So if we in the church haven't done a better job about friendship and community, it's probably no wonder that like we're not doing a good job of being an oasis of justice um, for other people or that our first impulse is, oh, we got to sort of run for the hills and get this figured out for ourselves. But it seems that what exactly your book is trying to say is this is a sort of, you know, a left foot and a right foot together taking step forward. That yeah. the more we grow talking about our friendship and community, the more we're also going to step with the other foot of reaching out to others and being that beacon. And that if we see a problem on one end, it's probably indicative of, you know, sin or difficulty or uh, dissipation in the other. Yeah. 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 I think you know um you know i describe friendship and community the, the book is the book is organized into you know to five parts one is the how we got here part and then it's four uh groups or 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 institutions within the church one is simply the um the institutional church itself then the parish then the family and then what i think is you know i i I hope is the most distinctive contribution of the book is friendship and community. We tend not to think of these. We tend to think of them as, as accessories that just so happen to sometimes form, but we can't really do anything about it. It will just happen or it won't happen. That's not the case at all. You can choose to form friendships. You can choose to make intentional decisions to live in such a way that a more community oriented way of life is possible. And, um, and so for me then, uh, I describe the this friendship and community as both the foundation and the keystone. Learning how to treat others with love 
um, the love of friendship, the love of sacrifice, the love of self-giving, um, this is the foundation to all the other forms of relationship that we talk about. Um, and then as that grows, especially as friendships become these kind of networks of, or I often think of like overlapping Venn diagrams of areas of interest and stages of life, this becomes a tight knit matrix that forms a real community. This I, I think is, um, you know, this is as close as I get, I think, to offering something that could be considered a um, uh, an option for for kind of you know Christian living in in today's world because it's it's about simultaneously understanding what makes us distinctive as Catholics and, and seeking out Catholic relationships genuinely, both in the sense of with other Catholics and in the sense that the relationships are imbued with faith. We aren't treating each other like we are rival corporations or like we are like a transactional relationship where we're like keeping a ledger either, you know, you know, either in our heads or God forbid on paper of the of the of the um, of the what has been given and, and shared. And uh, so that everyone's ledger is, is kept uh, is kept on par. No, it's about um, forming these kinds of relationships that both require us to take actions of self-giving and, 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 and selflessness, but then in turn teach it by forming habits of hospitality, habits of giving, habits of, um, habits of living uh, in such a way that the idea of, a, of zero of the zero sum relationship where everything that everything that is given is necessarily a loss um, where that becomes no longer obvious because you get used to living differently. That for me um, is, is kind of a key to, to forming, first of all, the kind of relationships among Catholics that allow us to understand that it's possible to live in a way that is more wholesome, more beautiful than what the world is offering. And then importantly, not just keep it for ourselves, demonstrate it to the world and invite others to participate. That, that's, you know, that's the real that's where the rubber meets the road, where you are within our own community, within our own sacramental, with our, within our own kind of sacramental worlds that we can form in parishes and in, in, in communities that are more or less attached to parishes, depending on geography and so on. Form that, but then the point is not to, to hoard it. The point is to let that light go out into the world and let it attract others. Brandon, in the intro to the show, I mentioned my garden and Bo was giving me a hard time about like growing pierogies in the garden and milking the cows <laughs> in the backyard for yangling. But he should have saved some of that ribbing for you because the book really bleeds Pittsburgh, like your experience growing yeah. up here and sort of like um, just the, the lay of the land, which is great because it really puts flesh on a lot of the ideas that you're talking about. Now, one thing uh, I, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here, but like one thing that I've wrestled with since becoming Catholic uh, about 12 years ago is sort of navigating that question between the local and the diocesan instantiation of the church. Yeah. And so you've, you've mentioned the community that you live in now, and you've got close friendships there in your neighborhood. Uh, you have a, a relationship to the local parish, um, and then your family drives a little bit of a ways to go to Mass. Could you talk some like uh, about how, as a family, you navigated those questions of, of where to worship, what that means, 
for your yeah. relationship to the closest parish, uh, what it looks like to say, have a rosary sodality in the neighborhood, not as, you know, like the answer for each listener who's tuning in, but as a glimpse of like how God's grace has uh, intruded into your life. Yeah. And also, I, Brandon, just to note that Bud put you in a bind, you have like three, two minutes to, to, two minutes. to okay, great. all this. Okay, great. So, <laughs> so here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The, the question for our family was how do we organize our life in such a way, in such a way that it, that it is, that it places our children in the best possible place with respect to the faith. That means that there are some things that we would like to do, for instance, having our neighborhood parish be our parish that didn't do not necessarily seem like the best option right now because of decisions other people made in terms of our friends and in terms of where the most vibrant life is right now liturgically and socially now the beautiful thing is that even though we have made a decision to go to the latin mass parish in our diocese our local parish still supports us in terms of for instance offering a, a family-oriented Bible study where, you know, you know how things are with, with anything that has to do with regard to children. They did the reams of paperwork they needed to do in order to be able to have childcare with several, many dozens of volunteers watching dozens of children so that um, families can have a Bible study, even though we are not actually members of the neighborhood parish. This is the kind of thing that I, I, I don't really know what the future holds for parishes because there's questions of things like maybe returning to the idea of personal parishes more, or I love the idea, ideally, of the parish being the center of life, not just socially and spiritually, but geographically. But as there's so much uncertainty right now, and that's another big thing for us is uncertainty, but it comes to, is our neighborhood parish even going to be there in a year or two because of the mergers going on in our diocese? we opted for the stability of a place that we know is going to be there. Now, with all of this movement that's going on, um, I think that the model that we have kind of stumbled into where different parishes are kind of serving different aspects of our, of our life. The neighborhood parish is serving in certain neighborhood oriented ways. The Latin mass parish is serving in a certain kind of liturgical and social stability that we know is going to be there after this year or next year or whatever. I can imagine a world in which, you know, the, on which that kind of situation is more common in which, um, you know, the, the way we think about parish life changes and it's not just the, it's, 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 um, it's, uh, because of the, the changes that are necessary with the demographic shifts and the geographic shifts in Catholic populations where that kind of thing where we're kind of cobbling it together, um, is, more common, I you know I don't know what the ideal long term solution is because I, I we're too spread out to have neighborhood parishes anymore. But perhaps neighborhood parishes come back with people deciding to form neighborhoods and then parishes rise out of them. I don't know. Is that too voluntaristic? I I don't know. Um, this was one of the hardest things in the book, and I just simply couldn't cover it the way I'd like to because. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what the future of Paris life is going to be. And I, I don't have, frankly, I don't have the kind of experience as certainly as like a parish priest or even in my age, I'm 32 years old to be able to, to really see what that's going to look like. So well, um, I hope that's helpful. Oh no, Brandon, I think it is very much so. And if people want to read more about it, they need to get your book, the prodigal church. It's available on Amazon. They can go to your website, brandonmcginley.com. Brandon, again, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. This is The Uncommon Good. May Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, our family, our city, our state, our nation, the world, the whole kit and caboodle. This is The Uncommon Good. We'll be back next week.
The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcast. Just search for The Uncommon Good. <laughs>